Hello, dear friends. We're sincerely happy to greet you again. Today we're going to talk with esteemed Igor Mikhailovich Danila. Hello. And Lilia. Greetings. Igor Mikhailovich, in the previous video you once again reminded us that subpersonalities really exist, and this is due to physics. It is not science fiction of any kind and not people's fantasies at all, as some individuals believe. And in some people, subpersonalities exist in huge numbers. You also said in the previous video that if a person looks carefully inside himself and observes himself, he will discover a state when it is one thing to have thoughts from the system, which are due to the work of our consciousness and the fact that it is aggressive. And it's a completely different thing when a person experiences and feels that something alien and foreign suddenly rises from the inside and totally overwhelms him. And you said that if our friends were interested, we would discuss this subject. You know, there is indeed a great interest and a great response, because it turns out that some people actually encountered those states in themselves when this emotion inside is of such a huge power, and it overwhelms a person so much that he cannot cope with it, and he even observes sort of two parallel flows. That is, on the one hand, he as if observes from a side how this emotion rises, how he already acts, but he cannot stop this process in any way. Hence, there is a question, what causes all of this? And what kind of a phenomenon is it? Well, again, this phenomenon is natural. If we talk about subpersonalities, then I would like to tell those who encounter this concept for the first time that subpersonality, in our understanding, I emphasize, although it was called this way in the past, too. It is actually an ordinary human, so to say, after death, who hasn't gained life, eternal. In religions, they talk a lot about hell, that we go somewhere underground or somewhere else. In reality, a human simply reincarnates, but not in the sense that reincarnation has occurred and we live in this world again and so forth. No, a human lives as personality only once, whereas a subpersonality transitions if a person died, I'll emphasize, but hasn't deserved life eternal, so to say. If he hasn't become an angel, he becomes a subpersonality. In other words, together with the soul, he reincarnates into another body, but there is already a completely different person, a completely different personality in that body. Therefore, subpersonality. You know, there is such an expression, it's like colors shimmering on a soap bubble. Let's say, it is information that is preserved. For this very reason, there is such a term as subpersonality. There used to be personality and it became subpersonality. Next, what causes those states? Well, let's begin with the fact that not every person can feel this because there are actually people. It's an extremely rare phenomenon when a person has no subpersonalities at all. This is very rare nowadays. On the one hand, on the other hand, there are people who have inactive subpersonalities, so they do not manifest themselves. But, for the most part, I'll even put it as follows. A prevailing majority of people do have a lot of subpersonalities. And sometimes there are active subpersonalities as well. 
the stronger a subpersonality is. Well, again, a lot of people have a question. What does stronger mean? Let's just say, the higher a subpersonality's accumulated energy potential is, the more it can manifest itself up to displacing the personality that lives now, the dominant personality, and simply gaining sort of a second life. Why? Subpersonality that replaces personality lives the same way and feels the same way as you, my friend, do now. Exactly the same. I mean, you feel your body, you have thoughts and everything else. So I explained this in order to make it clear what it begins with and how it occurs. Next, regarding states. A lot of things may influence a human. Consciousness throws in many various, let's say, sensations, combinations, and whatnot. We see mirages, there may be hallucinations, and all sorts of things, right? Consciousness plays with us through emotion very strongly as well. However, there are such states when it is indeed a subpersonality that manifests itself. How is that manifested? Tatiana has just explained. It's when a person feels that some kind of emotion has been triggered. He becomes distracted by that emotion. He takes offense at someone or something else, whatever, or somebody has hurt a person. Then on one hand he thinks, I should react, but on the other hand, it's not nice. And he feels that inside, exactly from inside. Something rises as if from his chest and overwhelms him. What are the indicators? Narrowing of consciousness, inability to actually change the situation. When you are aware and understand, but your body is already yelling at someone, getting into a fist fight, or let's say, behaving not quite normally. A person observes that, right. sees it, he is aware of it, and he understands that it is him who's doing it. But at the same time, he understands that it's not him who is doing it. At this point, sort of a split occurs. As personality, he already sees what is happening. Again, his consciousness simply doesn't function. He already receives information from primary consciousness that something terrible and incomprehensible is actually happening, while the person is helpless, he sees, but cannot do anything, and sometimes feels that something has taken possession of him. This is precisely a distinct emotional manifestation of a subpersonality. Why? Because at this time, it is scaring personality. Yes, the subpersonality has spent a lot of energy, but it has earned a lot more. That is such a one-off incident. However, there are frequent occasions when a human as personality doesn't even notice that activation of a subpersonality takes place, meaning a person sort of becomes a little bit distracted, and at this time, a sleep begins for him as personality. But an outsider sees that the person drastically changes at that moment. In other words, he changes absolutely, even his facial expression changes, everything changes, his character and voice change, the picture has changed. There is a different individual who is saying completely opposite things. A minute later, that person returns as if nothing has happened. He is told, you said that, but he doesn't believe it. He says he didn't say that. In psychology, they blame it on a split personality in the psyche and many other factors. While in fact, if we take an electroencephalogram of the person at this time, we will see that these are two absolutely different people. And at the level of energies, you can even feel that now this switch has occurred and you feel that there is already a different energy there. Well, Tatiana, it's when you have the ability to feel, when you perceive it all. But excuse me, 
most people do not even understand what you're talking about, the perception through feelings. They feel energies when they stick a nail into a socket, you see? Or when they touch something warm, then they feel it. But most people simply haven't engaged in certain practices. And this is not very clear to them. Although if they look inside themselves, any person, every one of us, you know, inside every person there is this very, I would call it a thermometer, you know, when those fluctuations occur. And you feel that something changes inside, when something shrinks inside, or, on the contrary, expands, when it feels good inside, or, on the contrary, when someone as if gets scared inside. If people are guided by this sensation, basically anyone can feel and understand it. Such an inner barometer. Of course, yes, like a barometer, not even a thermometer. I agree with you. Here, again, we are just voicing little things. How else can you discern manifestations of a subpersonality in a human or an impact of a subpersonality? After all, it frequently impacts a human, it impacts consciousness, and a human feels this phenomenon happening from within. If there is work of our consciousness or some intrusions by third forces, let's say, it all goes from the outside inwards, that is, we feel how it affects the energy structure itself, how it impacts us, its influence from the outside, whereas here it happens from within, especially when a person wants to hide somewhere in the dark. Look at children in general. Logic suggests that a child should actually be afraid of the dark, let's say, not to hide in a dark corner, but to be somewhere in the light. This is natural, it's our reflex. However, when a child, on the contrary, hides in a dark corner or somewhere under the bed and feels cozy there, if he behaves like a cat, you know, this already indicates that a person is influenced by something, let's say, external. I mean, as a certain force. In this case, most often, when a child seeks solitude and wants to hide somewhere, in a closet or somewhere else, he feels cozy there and he can sit there for hours. This is exactly a manifestation of a subpersonality. Why? Because a strong, yet insufficiently strong subpersonality poorly tolerates exposure to photon load. That is, light is not very good for it. It loses strength in this case. But there are some subpersonalities that do not care. They walk in the sun and replace a human. And there are a lot of such phenomena. This also happens, meaning a person can feel that under various conditions. Again, such manifestations as, for example, a person sets himself a task, a very difficult one. One thing is when a solution occurs in consciousness, but another thing is when it as if comes from within. And a person feels a solution to the issue from within, as if someone tells it to him. He only needs to repeat it all, for he didn't know the answer, but he immediately repeats it and feels that information is presented precisely from within, and everything turns out to be accurate. Some people even ask the question, how did you calculate it, yes. or something else, meaning they are surprised that the person has such an ability. But in fact, he just has a very clever subpersonality, some kind of a professor in the past, in the recent past at that. Igor Mikhailovich, I would like to consider the topic of the photon load in more detail. There is a belief that at the crack of dawn all evil spirits immediately disappear. Not only evil spirits. Why does an activation of subpersonality happen more often in the dark, as it turns out? Right, in the dark. How do photons affect this? Just 
for understanding. This applies not only to dark forces. Let's say, a prayer is deeper exactly when a person is in darkness or in a room, preferably either darkened or dark. A practice, even a spiritual one, works well under the sun too. But it is much more intense and deeper when it takes place either in a darker room or actually at night. During the night it works simply magnificently. Therefore, not only what is bad works at night, but also what is good. When we talk about some subtle energy processes, so to say, we should understand that everything has an impact here, the electromagnetic field, and again. And nowadays, we are overloaded. We have phones, Wi-Fi, it's a huge load, in fact. Habitually, we do not see and do not perceive it, but at the subtle energy level, it is felt very well. Now imagine what daylight is. It's a huge flow, a huge number of photons, so to say per every millimeter. In other words, these are highly energetically charged particles that literally move like a solid flow. That's why it is natural that for subtle material structures, for those very subpersonalities, it's a little bit difficult to be under such a load and to manifest some additional forces of theirs. Well, they will be discharged. Here's a simple example. You go outside in the heat, and you need to calculate something, something kind of smart. You no longer feel too good, right? Yes. Even when it's hot, you don't feel good. You feel good when it is comfortable or when it's a little bit cool. Then you can think well too. And you can think particularly well when you're in a half-darkened room. Why? Because nothing affects your consciousness, whereas your consciousness is outside the body. Well, thank God, experts who study consciousness, the brain, from the perspective of neurophysiology, neurobiology and so on, already talk openly about this. Meaning, they've already come to the conclusion that there are pictures in the brain, but there is no consciousness. That's the entire point. In other words, it's a field structure. And being a field structure, which is located again, so to say, in the same environment where you are. It's a natural process because it is always near. So, additional energy load contributes to this. Why do we even feel bad in the heat? Heat is… what is heat? Those are again waves that we experience, heat waves. Heat waves also don't affect people too well, not because it makes us feel uncomfortable, but because it makes it uncomfortable for consciousness too. Now, let's imagine, we are out in the sun, okay? We can still think. After all, consciousness is sort of not going anywhere. It's harder, but we can think. But what happens? For example, let's take a jellyfish, okay? I mean, it is less dense in structure, so to say. It evaporates very quickly in the sun. And now, let's reduce its density by at least a thousand times. What would happen to such a structure? Yes, very quickly, right. Of course. After all, the density of, let's say, subtle energy structures, whoever it is and whatever we call them, including consciousness, subpersonality, all sorts of third forces, and many, many other entities, everything that hides in the shadows, so to say. It's not very comfortable for them in the sun. These are additional expenditures of energy, therefore they try to avoid that. That's normal and natural. 
It's interesting. It's interesting, of course. So it turns out that this period of time when it's dark is good for subtle energy processes because depending on what predominates in a person, either good and his spiritual practices will work out better or bad, and then he is more open to the impact of those. Yes, to the impact of third forces on him. Although again, all these are sort of relative notions. Why? Even in the sun, a person may be exposed to an impact of subpersonality, and nothing really hinders it if it is strong enough in terms of energy. In other words, if it is able to resist all kinds of harmful radiation, let's say, harmful to itself, the same is true for the impact of third forces or whatever else. If enough power is applied, this happens anywhere. You see, there is also, again, if subpersonality seizes power, it lives instead of personality. It is clear that at this time, personality, I mean a human as a being, gives away his vital energy to an already dead entity, so to say, and the dead lives instead of him. This is certainly not good. There were cases when subpersonalities caused a lot of trouble. Why? Because subpersonality needs emotions. If it connects to a human, and especially if it connects to its carrier, to personality, it will directly rob it to the utmost until it takes away everything. The entire life. Let's say, until it turns that personality into a subpersonality as well. That's normal. And by the laws of hierarchy, for they have a very rigid hierarchy in that world. If subpersonality has suppressed personality, that personality, while being in tough conditions of a subpersonality and having little energy, will still pay tribute to both the dominant subpersonality and the system, and so on. That's how this world is arranged. I mean, we have a world of energy exchange. And here we have, again, we also depend on energy here, so to say, in the literal sense of the word. If there is no electricity, that's already a problem, isn't it? After all, it's energy. If there is no inner energy, that's it. We are wrecked and so forth. So everything in this material world, everything depends on energy. While in the subtle world, it depends on energy and its transmission even more. It's an equivalent, let's say, whatever it is, again, what does the equivalent of that very energy mean? For instance, what is food for us? Energy, It is, yes. again, a certain equivalent of energy. But it is rather energy that is intended for the body, for personality. Well, personality doesn't feed on fruit, so to say. Again, it needs a different energy. Prana, a lot. Pure one. Yes, and so on. Well, there are other kinds of energy here. Let's say, they are more valuable and more pure but they are exactly hunted for. Why? Because even when we recall a deceased person, what do we need? The person's image and name. Whereas if we also recall him emotionally, we definitely transfer a part of our life to the deceased, and it brings him relief. Why? When subpersonality receives additional energy, just for you to imagine, it's like when it's hot, you are exhausted in the middle of a desert, and someone gives you a cup of water. That's already good. I mean, at least for a certain period of time, while you drink, you already feel better. And for a certain period of time, you're already relieved, right? That's why subpersonalities are very active. They themselves search for those whom they can reach. There is another question, Ingrid Mihalovic. You've said that once a personality becomes active, it basically seizes personality completely, right? 
Not always. Not always. It doesn't always seize it. Partially. There may be complete replacement and subpersonality may live for years while a person is like in a dream. Let's put it so and he doesn't even know what's going on. Then he comes to his senses, and he is simply shocked. For instance, we talked a lot about Billy Milligan. Right. Why? Because it's a described, well-studied classic case, and all this is confirmed by encephalograms. So, it's a fact that no one can argue. There have been a lot of such cases, and believe me, there are many well-studied cases. It's just that people are afraid of voicing this. However, subpersonality doesn't do only bad things, Sometimes a symbiosis between personality and subpersonality occurs. Then, subpersonality does not replace personality, they live in symbiosis. If subpersonality was sufficiently developed intellectually, it uses its knowledge because a person remembers everything after death, only he understands much more. Then he already, indisputably, understands that there are both the devil and God. And everything is not quite the way our religions and the like tell us here. The reality is both more beautiful and tougher, so to say, depending on where a person has ended up. But nevertheless, using its capabilities, an intellectually developed subpersonality can live in wonderful symbiosis with a new personality. Yes, this personality is doomed. It will definitely become a subpersonality. And certainly, this subpersonality, which, let's say, has got to the personality without even replacing it but living in symbiosis, it will dominate it after death of the personality. That's for sure. But during his lifetime, a person experiences, let's say, additional, you know, like an additional consciousness, like a help that comes from nowhere. People often confuse that with angels, with spirits, sort of family spirits that help, you see? That kind of thing. Intuition. Yes, a person has a developed intuition. Well, intuition is one thing, but another thing is when a really huge flow of knowledge yes. in various fields comes to a person, I mean, no matter what a person does, if subpersonality possesses the knowledge, it provides it easily. And it happens that a person lived his entire life, has reached a certain age, a fairly advanced age already, and then a fabulous businessman awakens in him. And he becomes very rich. The question is, why? He suddenly turns from an ordinary man into a financial genius. After all, such cases have often occurred. Yes. When a person starts playing at a stock exchange or somewhere else, or simply builds a colossal business, people ask him, how come? Why? He says, a thought, an idea has come. He won't tell the truth, but he feels where the knowledge comes from. It's just a flow of knowledge and understanding, sort of an undeniable one, you see? Yet, why has it happened that way? While he was young, he had plenty of strength. Subpersonality is weak, but very smart, and it couldn't connect. However, when his life was already heading towards twilight, so to say, personality became weaker. And at this point, subpersonality managed to become active. It has enough knowledge. It lacks strength to completely displace personality, but it has managed to build a symbiosis. And subpersonality simply uses its knowledge to make a human as personality richer, more successful, and so on. It's an emotion. It doesn't matter what kind of emotion. The main thing is that it should be bright and powerful. And it's very good for subpersonality, since it lives instead of the person. This person could have lived for a hundred years, but he will live 
20 years less. Meanwhile, subpersonality feels good. And for sure this personality, this human whom it helped, will already be a slave of this subpersonality. Thus, everything is very simple. There is also the following question, Inger Mihalovic. If an activation of subpersonality occurs in people at an early age, very often it is actually triggered exactly by domestic violence, but what about adults? It depends on the age, you see. Again, very often reincarnation takes place precisely before the primary surge. I mean, again, what does reincarnation mean? Domination of a subpersonality, let's put it so. Or again, a symbiosis. When personality is not lost, when a child says that he sort of remembers his past life fragmentarily, that's incomplete contact. But when a child asserts, and in this case, it is seen how the child changes and he begins to speak as an adult. Adult. After all, this often happens, friends. Yes, people admire him. And he says, I lived there, or I was a pilot, or something else. He clearly indicates where. Have such cases not been studied? They've been studied many times. People go there, and the facts are confirmed. A little time passes, and the child becomes a child again. Or some kind of an outburst occurs inside a child, and the child begins, he immediately changes and starts talking like an adult, who he was, what he did, and so on. Literally, a minute passes, and the child is playing with his toys again. People ask him questions. He looks and doesn't understand yes, what, happened. what they are talking about. Most often, this happens in childhood. Often, children simply amaze with their wisdom. When a child begins to reason like an adult, but doesn't change at that, this indicates that there is a symbiosis, that it is exactly a subpersonality that gives him the knowledge. In fact, these are frequent occurrences. And later on, yes, there is more. I wouldn't say it directly depends on the age. Everything depends on the energy which subpersonality obtains. And what is this very trigger for adults? After the age of 70, or at the age of 60 or 50, for subpersonality to suddenly become active. Weakening of personality, regardless of the cause. So there may be various emotions, right? Old age, a disease. There may be stresses of some kind. Stressful situations. A person became emotional at some point. There are stressors. And what is a connection, so to say, of a subpersonality to a person? What does the person experience? The person exactly experiences constant stress, because every such connection for a human as personality and as a body is a stress. And people often have this, you know, anxiety syndrome, this inner anxiety, sort of nothing is going on, everything is normal. There is no reason for it. But a person is restless. It's like an expectation of something bad. So he walks around, so to say, becomes restless and concerned about something. He worries, and even sedatives do not work. Why? Because this destabilizes him from within. And if you just sit down and talk to such people, and by the way, my friend and I, so to say, had a chance to often talk to people with this kind of anxiety syndrome. Almost all of them say that something is eating them up from within. Well, such a simple expression. It's enough to distract a person, to remove or to transfer him. Let's say, if we speak the language of vibrations to higher vibrations, then everything immediately goes back to normal. 
This anxiety syndrome instantly disappears. Everything calms down. Why? Because a person has shifted his attention, and he no longer feeds the system. He no longer feeds this subpersonality, and he immediately feels a relief. You know, I would actually compare it to, well, it's like a leech latches on. It drinks blood. And the more anxiety it creates, the more nutrients it gets. That's also a common occurrence, but it also goes away. This can last for, say, a month, for some people for a year, for others for two years, and then it suddenly disappears. Does this mean that a subpersonality has become weaker? How is that? It has already replaced him, right? Well, has it gained strength? Has it gained strength and that's it? And it doesn't need anything else? No. On the contrary, subpersonality does become much stronger. It has gained that missing power to enter not a replacement phase, but so to say, a more latent phase of manipulating personality. And the person feels as if someone is leading him through life. After all, this is a frequent phenomenon. People say it's a guardian angel that stops one somewhere, saying, don't go there. A person stops and a car passes by. Somewhere, on the contrary, it says, run. A person runs and a stone falls behind him. So if he didn't run, well, even such phenomena occur. I'm exaggerating, but there are a lot of such things. For example, a person wants to build a business and it tells him, no, don't do that. Or, on the contrary, it says, invest in this. The person says, well, it's not profitable. Well, it says, invest. And this reaches a point that a person talks in his head with a subpersonality. There were even cases, this is from the field of psychiatry. These are well-studied cases, studied by us as well. When a person even perceived it as an interlocutor, you see? In other words, it's as if something dense is being materialized. People say, you can literally feel it physically. You cannot see it, but you feel its presence. Is it someone coming from outside? And what do mages, priests, and at once everyone else start telling you? It's a guardian angel. Well, some say it's a demon. Others, it's a guardian angel. It doesn't matter. But in fact, it's a banal subpersonality. A person is simply lucky. He doesn't just have a strong subpersonality, but also an intelligent one. You see? Therefore, friends, if you do not intend to go to God, let's put it so, then develop intellectually and you will help someone. I'm just kidding, of course. Well, you know, treating the other world without humor is terrifying. Let's say, that's why it is better to treat it with a bit of humor. Right. Igor Mikhailovich, a lot of people write in the comments that such signs appeared in them, which is similar to an activation of a subpersonality, after various stressful situations, after an accident or a clinical death experience. Yet, can a stress experienced by a child, for example, during a funeral or a visit to a cemetery, also become a trigger? It surely can. Really? Definitely. Especially at funerals. Especially if a child sees a dead person. Precisely, this situation might be a stress for a subpersonality to simply become active in him. Why? Because there is an understanding of finitude, and consciousness plays an evil joke on him, saying, look, you are mortal. Well, and there are many other factors. So a person, a child falls into such an energy pit when personality simply gets frightened, locks itself in, and at that moment, when less energy flows from personality to consciousness, that's where subpersonality can wedge itself in.
Well, let's just say it's a natural process and it frequently happens. So these states, when children want to escape something, to run away, yes. as in domestic violence, if they worry, it turns out this can also provoke the activation, right? Well, if domestic violence occurs, definitely, of course. A person simply wants to avoid this violence. He doesn't know where to go. Where to go. Not everyone can run into the street, for example, right? So a person tries to hide inside, to fall asleep, to sort of... To abstract himself. Yes, to abstract himself from the situation by finding in himself, I emphasize in himself... A corner. A dark corner and hiding. Again, you see, we have come to a dark corner. This is exactly an intensification of subpersonality's activity. Yes, or children ask inwardly. They simply want someone to help them, someone to solve the situation yes, for them. And so, they open up. But we shouldn't forget that besides subpersonalities, there are also third forces. I mean, well, the invisible world is like an ocean. There are lots of entities there. Subpersonalities are those who eat us. They are the closest to a human because they are inside and we carry them. Also, going back to the subject of cemeteries, there is a belief that a person can leave a cemetery with an invisible settler. So it turns out that not only can a person's subpersonality become active in him, but some unrelated dead person can also latch on to him, so to say. As for an unrelated dead person, it's not so easy to pick them up, let's say, those are relatives. If we speak in terms of physics in general, the energy structures of living people should be in contact with each other for a long time. Then, after a person's death, when he becomes a subpersonality, he has, speaking our language, an electronic address. In other words, wherever the other person is, he feels him. It's a close person. A close one, meaning at a funeral of a loved one, for example, it is possible. Yes, easily. If it's a loved one, at a funeral and so on. If it's a loved one, then funerals have nothing to do with that at all. Yes, it is simply an image and a name. Subpersonality yes. will find a path. In any case, it will latch onto relatives and loved ones, first and foremost. Let's put it this way. Close friends who are already like relatives, with whom you are in close relationships oftentimes. Again, what does a close relationship mean? It's when our energy structures, let's say, mix. So when they mix, they exchange information. That is, we exchange information not only verbally, by means of facial expressions and via many other factors, but also at the level of energies. And this should be known. While this is a kind of an address, why do we often feel? A person hasn't entered yet, but we can already feel or know who it is. Such things happen don't they? Yes, they do. And for gifted people who are able to heed or feel their energy structure more subtly, these phenomena happen quite often, right? Igor Mikhailovich, what should a person who sees the signs of activation of a subpersonality in himself do? What to do? How to neutralize the action of this subpersonality? Do you know that many people don't want to? Do they not want to? So... Many people don't want to. Again, let's put it so. We know people who it's been proven that those are subpersonalities. They are very well aware that there is a subpersonality in them, but it is in symbiosis and they don't want to part with it. Because subpersonalities prompt them. Knowing and understanding that they will become a subpersonality and so on, they don't want to. It is comfortable for them, you see? I mean, they always have someone at their fingertips, someone who sort of protects them, someone who makes money for them, you see? Someone who makes them the way people want to be, you see? Meaning, this again satisfies their ego, so they don't want to. 
But what if it's an average person who, for example, suddenly notices that there are some dialogues in his head, this doesn't concern him, meaning he doesn't use this in his life in any way, he just sees that something is wrong. I understand. A person realizes that he has an invisible settler, so to say, an active subpersonality. So what should he do? There is one way out, my friends, and that is spiritual development. In other words, you should make yourself as personality so strong that nothing dead can dominate you. That's the only option. Everything else, all sorts of rituals, all sorts of visiting, excuse me, various buildings with priests, even if you bathe in those vats of water, with holy water, or put on yourselves whatever you want, nothing will help and nothing will save you from a subpersonality, except personal spiritual growth. This is true. Igor Mikhailovich, when subpersonality manifests itself and seizes the attention of personality, guys asked us the following question: Can subpersonality actually pray and, using the power of personality during this period, somehow improve its situation and plead for its forgiveness? Is subpersonality capable of praying? You won't believe it, but even atheists, having become a subpersonality during their lifetime, spend years engaging in prayers. But this is pointless. Why? Because only over years does subpersonality realize that its prayers are in vain. A human can attain spiritual salvation only during his lifetime. That's actually, friends, what this life is given to you for, precisely here and now. You make a choice. You are endowed with what? With the freedom of choice. You can choose to live or to die. But when you have chosen to die, God doesn't give you a second chance. There is only a maximum of nine days when relatives can help, I mean, close people who are mixed, so to say, connected with a deceased person at the energy level. Those ones can help, and not to gain life, but only to relieve his fate. While from the tenth day, that's it, the fate is determined. On the ninth day, it is determined, as they say, well, after the ninth day is correct. And then that's it. People also asked another question, Ingrid Mikhailovich. Is it possible to hypnotize a subpersonality? For example, we can somehow form some new mindsets in a person. You're not the first ones. We can reach out to subpersonality. But is it possible to retrain it a little bit? Wait a minute. It is possible to reach out and come to an agreement. Why? Just like with any other person. Because they are absolutely normal, adequate people, just like you and me, friends. Almost in 100% cases, with rare exceptions, when, pardon me, an insane entity has settled in a person. And we do have such cases, but again, insanity is only manifested in megalomania, when a person gets reborn in a controlled way. In that case, you can do nothing. It's a mortal creature that has tasted power. As for the rest of subpersonalities, you can come to an agreement with them, you can communicate, and talk to them. You and I actually talk, and we talk to familiar and unfamiliar people. Why not? If subpersonality is active and becomes, pardon me, dominant in a person's body, what difference does it make? What about programming subpersonality against evil manifestations, or retraining it, or somehow deactivating, turning deactivating, it off, turning it off by means of hypnosis? I'll explain. A lot of experiments were carried out by a great many people who really studied this, including my friend, on hypnotic influence. And my friend is a master at it, believe me, friends. Hypnotic influence on an active subpersonality. 
I always enjoyed it and always laughed at it. He tried to explain to me that it's a work of consciousness, and hypnosis must actually have an effect. Why? It has an effect on animals. This is true. Animals are easily hypnotized, yes. Yes, they have no soul. That's it. There is no source. The point is actually in consciousness. Hypnosis operates between two components. An animal still has primary consciousness, and there is a split of consciousness anyway, right? An animal doesn't have a developed secondary consciousness as we have, but there is anyway a certain self-identification and consciousness mind. So to say, it is possible to wedge in there to suggest an animal's execute. This was proven by Bektorov, Durov, and many others. In fact, there are plenty of works, you see? And that very Pavlov did not dispute this process, that animals are susceptible to hypnosis, to suggestion, moreover, to a nonverbal one. Even at the level of thoughts, all of this really exists. But it's impossible to affect subpersonality via hypnosis. Because they are already soldered with consciousness. Absolutely right, yes. So in order for you to interfere, there should be an observer. And the one who perceives this world, the observer doesn't care. He doesn't see this world. It means you should interfere here. Replace him, and then it all works. I'm just trying to explain. This is a very simplified form of perception. It is easier with animals. Animals have a self-identifier, sort of their own self, and there is a certain mind, consciousness, a mind. Friends, there is even a collective mind, excuse me, in a colony of bacteria. But to suggest something to them, well, it is actually possible to suggest something to them. It is so because there is self-identification and there is a collective mind. Works on suggestion have been carried out, and it works. It is possible to affect colonies. I'll even digress a little bit. And this is very interesting. Why? Because in actual fact, hypnosis is something different from how we habitually perceive it. You know, that there are gypsy forms of hypnosis. There's hypnosis, which is on stage. There's therapeutic hypnosis, and there are other forms of suggestive hypnosis. However, Let's say, there are also certain influences that contribute to manifestations of subpersonality in a human. So it's a little bit different completely. Whereas, it is possible to affect, for instance, a colony of those very viruses in a petri dish or fungi. And you can see it all visually, which of them are affected and which are not. Why? Because abilities and capabilities of a human are enormous, in fact. And, thank God, we do not possess many of them and have forgotten and lost a lot. In our consumerist format nowadays, that would be too much already. So, it's impossible to instill something in subpersonality, but it is possible to reach an agreement. To reach an agreement, but what to offer to a subpersonality? To reach an agreement for it to high price. I'll explain. I'll describe. You have just said what to offer to a subpersonality. For example, a young girl, she was 16 years old, and she had an active subpersonality, but without replacement. The subpersonality was actually masculine in the past. Let's say, he was a simple man, he abused alcohol, and he encouraged this girl to do bad things. But the girl was a timid, modest, and normal girl. 
She complained and got into a mental health clinic because of her mental disorder. Thank God she got under the supervision of my friend. He immediately identified this phenomenon and simply started negotiating with that fellow. He refocused him that he would only eat when she wanted to do sports or needed to stand up for herself, but he would not disturb her or hinder her life. Otherwise, my friend would just turn him off. Training. Right. And the man demonstrated to the subpersonality that he could break the chain. And this subpersonality realized that he was much weaker than the man he was dealing with. So he was forced to agree. The most interesting thing was during the tests. The tests, I only watched the video, I didn't see the actual fact, but that was interesting. When conditions were created and during the test, some person approached and began to irritate the girl. And this girl told him to get lost, almost in a bass voice, while in real life this girl is a very fragile dandelion. So the subpersonality started to defend her. Why is it not allowed? I emphasize why. Because many people will have questions. Why negotiate? Why not break the chain if you can? Yes, you can break it. But it's a person's choice. Subpersonality manifests itself when personality is weak. When a human spends too much of his power as personality, not on his own spiritual growth, but on fantasy. This girl loved to read interesting books. She traveled on ships. She rode a horse with fairy tale princes. Since her childhood, she played toys with little gnomes and the like. In other words, she lived in an illusion, like many other people do. However, she spent the power of her attention on creating images, on dreams. But she didn't send the power of her attention on perceiving God's love. As personality, she became depleted, started weakening, and the subpersonality became active. Why? Because that guy was a workman. He had been very active among his friends in the past. Yes, he was an alcoholic, but he was a ringleader, he was a toastmaster, and so forth. Life and soul of the party. Life and soul of the party. And excuse me, he was recalled by many. And he had enough power to capture this young lady. That's the whole answer to how it happens. It's commonplace physics, friends. It might seem, yes, if one looks from the outside, you know, if a person is far from this and he is listening to our conversation, well, it's also like we escaped from psych ward number six. To put it mildly, we came to the studio and we are sitting here and philosophizing. Well, if they honestly look inside themselves, they will find all the situations, very many of them, everything that we are describing. You know, in fact, very many people, when a subpersonality manipulates them, they are unable to look inside themselves. And the subpersonality will precisely defend its positions. When a person feels that people are telling the truth, subpersonality will say, no, that's schizophrenia, it's impossible clearly, firmly, with a mindset. And there is this split, when you feel and understand while you hear the order that it's impossible and it's out of the question, then, my friends, at this point you should ponder. It's a simple example of how a dominant subpersonality manifests itself and leads you to hell, that is, into slavery to itself. This is worth thinking about. 
Yes, by the way, very often we can see this in the comments under the videos on the Shadow Control channel. There are exactly such highly categorical statements, so it's immediately seen where a person is already under the power. Yes, completely. Completely under the power of the system. Well, again, we should approach this, let's say, a little bit more broadly. After all, there is an ocean of life on that invisible side, and there can be any influence from there, either from third forces or magic influences yes. by ordinary people and sub-personalities as well. But those people are radically different. Also, under the video where it is said that sub-personalities can steal life from the living people, they also write the following point as if they express doubts and say, if the dead really stole life from the living, there would be no people left on the planet because we remember the dead too much and we do not actually notice a significant reduction in life. As we lived for 70 years, so we still live and everything is fine, and we go to a cemetery and remember the dead. Yes, and everything is fine. Yes, and everything is good. We have a good life and things like that, you know? A lot of such people can have a good and enjoyable, wonderful life, and quite a long one. But the subsequent outcome of the after-death fate, so to say, is unambiguous to get into slavery to a sub-personality that has lived their life instead of them. And such a sad outcome is quite frequent. As for the fact that they say, we wouldn't exist anymore, we would have been devoured long ago, that's nonsense, friends. Let's say, the reserve of life in a human is enough for at least 1,500 years at a minimum. Yes, for many reasons we age very quickly, we wear out, there are chemical reactions and many other things, information disturbances, plus these subpersonalities. Let's look at the average statistics, okay? Let's suppose that instead of living 100 years, a person lived 70 years. But why? And here we will find a thousand and one reasons. He was sick, or something else, and so on. But are you sure that this is the case? Or did someone actually eat 30 years of his life? A simple question. Yet, I took a very simple and minor example, right? But it's not the length of life that matters, it's the quality of life that is important. When a person lives happily, and he is filled with life, or when he is empty inside, so to say, rushes from one end to another and doesn't understand what he needs. He cannot fulfill or find himself, and no matter what he achieves, he gets upset, you know? Such an unstable psyche. But why? Yes, again, no one has cancelled those very mental disorders and that very selfishness of a human. And who pushes him? Who spoils a person's life? Who makes him emotional? Who makes him yearn or feel lonely? Who mocks a person? A simple question. And it immediately says, the enemy is there, in the external. Because these third forces, let's call them so, always hide and always show a human as personality, that the enemy is somewhere in the external. So a lot of people simply do not live, but exist, survive, and look for an enemy in someone. And then someone among politicians is to blame, then someone among relatives, friends, or a boss, anyone is to blame. But in fact, a human as personality is to blame, because he did not develop spiritually, and he is simply manipulated, he is eaten, and he doesn't notice that. So who is to blame again? As for the fact that we would have been eaten long ago, no. We wouldn't have been, just wouldn't. Let's put it this way. 
I'll explain. We are starting a farm. We are raising, let's say, sheep there. We've just got them, and we ate them. Is that a good business or a bad one? Or is it better to shear wool, breed them somehow, and so on? And again, to increase the number of your herd. Doesn't that remind you of anything? To let a person engage in the spiritual a little bit, but then to take the energy away, which is also… To give hope and then take it away. To give hope and then take it away, This is right? trivial manipulation. If we delve deeper and look in general at how this world has existed for the last 6,000 years, we see the fact that more and more this world is being ruled by the dead, not by the living. And this is also true, so there is nothing to be surprised about here. What about the following question, Ingrid Mikhailovich? Can seeing such personalities, or let's say the dead in one's dream presage, a good event, be a good sign? For example, the following situations are described. Never. Well, the situation is as follows. One sees a deceased person in a dream, wakes up in the morning in a high mood, full of energy, and there is some kind of euphoria. So, based on this, one has an impression that definitely there may be situations when you have a dream about a deceased person, and it's a good sign. This inspires him. Yes. Again, the deceased come in order to eat. They eat your life. Sometimes a person sees the deceased in a dream and wakes up in anguish, in sadness, in a bad mood. He saw a relative, he talked to him, or the relative advised him something. It doesn't matter. While well, sometimes a person is indeed, as you say, cheerful, in such high mood, yes. full of beans. But if we take his blood for analysis, what will we see? A release of… Endorphins. Absolutely right. Why? Because the body compensates at this time. In other words, it's like compensation. When this scum comes, there is no other way to call it. It causes such damage to the body that our organism perceives this as a serious or almost fatal trauma. You see? So this trauma, which happens at the energy level, affects everything up to the work of the nervous system. It affects just everything. Let's say, let's not list that. But at that time, the body, as it counts the losses, it's the same as if we've lost a lot of blood, you know? Or we've had a limb cut off. What does it do? It turns on those very compensatory mechanisms. Absolutely right. And the compensatory mechanisms precisely create this euphoric mood, which a person experiences afterwards. So the person was devout even more, in fact, Absolutely right. and more life and vitality was sucked out of him. A simple question. Let's take incubi, succubi, and the like. What do they give a person? Euphoria. But what do they do? They devour. They bind, they dominate. Those are trivial third forces. If we compare a strong, active subpersonality and those very succubi, who is more dangerous for a person? That's the answer. Isn't that so? Of course, a subpersonality is, especially a strong one, because you will be its slave. You will never become a slave to that very succubus. Why? Yes, it might devour you, it might drive you to suicide, to anything, right? It will make you think, worry, or get nervous. The mechanism is very simple. Well, let's say to stir you up in order to take the cream off. That's their point. They just want to eat, and that's all. They have satisfied their appetite and gone. They left for you either a good mood or anguish as a reward. When this state passes, a hollow sadness or a craving arises, and the person can no longer resist. He already craves this. Why? 
because it becomes like an addict. However, the body becomes drastically depleted. Yes, this is dangerous, you might die, but a subpersonality will also make a slave of the one it dominates. Why? It's business. So look, we build relationships in this world, and we build the world itself almost like a mirror reflection in relation to the world of the dead, where subpersonalities dominate. Again, hierarchies, domination, infinite greed, and insatiability. Isn't that so? It is. That's what is frightening, friends. Because only the dead can bring that into this world. It should be different in our society. Life, not death, should actually dominate here, in this world. Yes. People also ask that, for example, when the dead come in their dreams, they show care, saying, I'm letting you go, please live. Or, on the contrary, they say, why are you mourning so much? That's enough, let me go. Is it actually possible for a subpersonality to care about a person? And can a subpersonality let someone go in general? It is possible, only during the transition to a new level, meaning when there is a weak contact influence. But when a subpersonality can come to personality, to a relative, to a very close friend, let's say, whoever, to a contact person, so to say, or to an object. When a subpersonality can come only in a phase state of sleep, while here, in this case, it transitions to a completely new level, meaning, when personality already doesn't notice this contact, after all, they also have, let's say, steps of growth. The more power a subpersonality receives, the stronger it becomes, which means that its impact is greater. What is the danger of that? It will consume more life. That's the whole point. But for a subpersonality to let someone go, that doesn't happen. Igor Mikhailovich, there is the following situation guys mentioned. In one of the videos, you talked about how the dead seriously affect those who currently remain to live here. Very much. Let me give you a simple example. Who doesn't know such cases? There was a family. Yes. Let's suppose the husband died after two or three months, yes. usually within the first year. The wife passed away or, on the contrary, the wife died, and then the husband passed away, and so on. How many cases like that are there? Yes, it can be explained from a psychological point of view, right? People lived together, they lived their lives for decades, there's a longing or something else. Well, even among young people, it often happens. Okay, they loved each other, they missed each other, and so on. But how can you explain that most of these deaths are actually of a completely different level? Let's sort this out, friends. A husband dies, three months pass, his wife gets into a car accident and simply crashes. A wife dies, again, her husband falls from a height at work and crashes. Yes, he might have been pushed psychologically and things like that. It's not due to anguish. Excuse me, and when injuries happen that have nothing to do with a person yes. from the outside, so it's not that he went out on the road, jumped in front of a train or something else. However, in that case, yes, he could have jumped from a height himself. But when there are man-made accidents that could only be formed by external factors of some kind, either someone very strong forms them, or let's put it so, you have to go deep, almost into science fiction to explain that. What kind of power do the dead actually have then? in order to influence yes. such situations. Yes. After all, there are lots and lots of them. Isn't it true?
Here's also a question from our viewers. How does it happen that you sort of don't use an image and a name for subpersonalities to be able to somehow fit off you? And a subpersonality is supposedly in another body, in another energy structure. But through what else can subpersonalities influence those who remain here to live? Let's put it this way. There is quantum entanglement. I'll explain it simply. After all, that very real power is used. What, let's say, space or shielding can there be for the real power? Can anything hinder it? No. Yes, we can shield an electromagnetic impact. Yet, how will we resist interconnected particles or quantum processes. And I'll say it again for smart people. A subpersonality directly contacts those to whom it knows the way. And it knows the way to those with whom it was mixed in terms of energy often enough. I mean, those are employees at work. You have worked for 20 years. You were sitting at one table. Your energy structures were in contact with each other. If an employee has died, you will feed him. When we recall a person, when we yearn or become emotional, we feed them voluntarily. But the fact that we feed them voluntarily is a trifle compared to how much we feed them involuntarily and without even realizing that. This is really true. What if a relative is distant, someone with whom you had little contact, in fact? Can he influence a person? If the person had little contact, if, let's say, he doesn't feel yearning, doesn't recall, and he doesn't have an inheritance from this dead person either, then, basically, he couldn't care less about this subpersonality. There are no traces. Again, we go back to those very, let's say, traces by which a subpersonality can find the living, right? That very property. Okay? For example, a person spent half of his life making a flower pot, molding it out of clay. He invested a lot of his life, energy, and attention in it. All right, a pot, whatever. He sold it and got, he decided to sell it and got three dollars for it. That's the result of many hours of his life. That's already an equivalent. What is the difference? After all, he is attached to it. He took those three dollars, bought a ring, I'll buy it with a little cubic zirconia, but it's a crystal. Thus, his energy has already flowed, pardon me, from the pot through the dollars into the cubic zirconia. Meanwhile, it's a dense structure capable of storing memory. So in this case, not even a distant relative, but a total stranger in general. If the subpersonality is strong and values it all, or it used to practice magic, yet what is magic? It is concentration on something, directly playing with the real power. Then, excuse me, all sorts of such stones absorb all this very well, and they already store information. Is it capable of influencing a person? It is. If a person, for example, you have inherited a ring from someone who wasn't very good, so when you get into a stressful situation while you are wearing it, then this monster may come to you precisely through this ring. 
and simply dominate you. Yes, it's an unrelated subpersonality, someone who died a long time ago. But the concepts of distance and space for the real power, as well as for quantum processes, it is all completely different than in our world. I'll put it carefully, completely different. By the way, speaking of jewelry, there are a lot of mystical stories connected with heirloom jewelry that is passed down by inheritance and has genuine stones or diamonds in it. And for example, the denser a stone is, let's say, the denser the crystal lattice is, the more information it may contain. It's like flash drive formatting. Therefore, why is a denser stone valued, that very diamond, for example? It has a higher density compared to other stones, which means it is more informative. And the interesting thing which is connected with this jewelry is that it is said that misfortune befalls on anyone who becomes the owner of this jewelry. That is, it literally befalls everyone who receives it in their hands. Even some patterns are observed in that situation. There is a story about this one diamond. The first owner of that diamond got it as a result of stealing it from a man whom he threw off a ship. And it turns out that everyone who possessed this stone later on also fell from a height. In other words, they died in such a way that they either threw themselves out of windows or… Well, the story didn't start with that. The story started with how the one from whom it was taken away and who was thrown off the ship, how he obtained that stone. He invested in it much more than anyone else, and to him this stone was extremely valuable. It was something fateful, something in which he had invested his hope. So he held the stone in his hands, he admired it, he put his attention into it, he was making plans and hopes. It was his future. But his future was taken from him, and he was thrown off. And afterwards, people got what they got, right? Right. In other words, the subpersonality is so strong that it follows the trace of this stone, of this stone meaning it feels this stone. Naturally, when it gets to someone alive, this subpersonality will first eat this person, while afterwards it will make it so that, well, let's put it so, this person will become its slave. But through falling from a height, and there are plenty of such examples, flip through history, read it, friends. This is connected not only with stones, not only with jewelry, but with painting, isn't it? Yes, with paintings, right. Yes. By the way, there is a story about the painting, The Crying Boy. There. Yes, I know. Yes, the very circumstances of how that picture was painted are also strange, it turns out. They are not strange, but they are exactly the basis of the whole further destiny. What set this whole chain in motion? Of course. Well, with this painting… Tell our friends, because they don't know. Yes. It turns out that the painter used his own son as a model. He wanted to paint a picture of a crying boy, but the boy didn't want to cry. And the father, knowing that the boy was afraid of fire, lit matches in front of his face, and naturally the boy cried. Until at one point, the boy shouted out to his father, burn yourself. Eventually, the boy died a couple of weeks later of pneumonia, and soon after him, the father died. Moreover, he burned in that house. 
Then, after a while, there was already a story connected with the reproduction of this painting, which in fact was absolutely inexpensive. One fire inspector established a pattern among the fires that were sweeping through England at that time, and he noticed that in all those fires where houses burned to the ground, literally the only thing that survived the fires was this painting, exactly a reproduction of the crying boy. So it turns out that it provoked such circumstances. Of course. And the key point is, again, a child who was tortured and abused, and this power was embedded into the painting itself. In this case, even though it was a reproduction, it worked. In other words, it left a trace. That's the answer. And there are a lot of such examples. How to explain them from the perspective of fortuity, from the perspective of patterns? After all, they completely destroy all our theories, conjectures, and all our understandings of this life. I mean ordinary life. Why? Because willingly or unwillingly, whether you are an atheist or whatever, in general, the biggest atheist I have met in my life is my friend who, to be honest, has absolutely no doubt that there is God and there is the devil. But he is old enough, so to speak. Nevertheless, he is always trying to prove that, you see? I already don't know to whom he is proving it. He already has. But nevertheless, he's trying to prove it. To prove it to himself once again. He discovers the truth every time during an argument with himself. Yes, absolutely right. No, he doesn't really argue. But such a… When I recollect him, when we became acquainted, he was a genuine atheist. Here is the following question, Igor Mikhailovich, about how a legacy, property and belongings of the deceased impact a person. Directly. You know, it is such a… Let's say, a lot of questions will arise now. Yes. And perhaps we would like to somehow ask them right away a little bit. Okay, let's discuss this. You know, I'd like to tell you that it's a very acute situation. It is. Do you know what causes it? Human greed. When people, because of their own greed, deprive themselves of the future, and that's the truth of life. So let's elaborate on it as much as possible so that we don't have to come back to it anymore. Because the topic of subpersonalities and after-death fate is interesting for people. I understand. But for me, it is still much closer and more interesting to talk about God's home. And I would like it to become a home for all of us, friends, for each of you. This is more interesting. However, the true knowledge liberates. That's why such topics, yes, they… But, you know, I'll put it this way. There are a lot of people who come to God, understanding that there is the devil. Those who face those very sub-personalities, those very third forces, Life hits them so hard, indeed, that neither psychiatry nor physics can explain anything. And the only thing left is to understand that there is God. So when they already start addressing God and already stand firmly on the spiritual path, you know, many of them secretly thank the devil for his existence and thank God for creating the devil, because if there was no devil, they wouldn't know God. And if they didn't know God, they wouldn't gain life. And there are a lot of such angels. This is true. Let's continue. Ingrid Mikhailovich, our viewers will surely recall now that they are those who have possessions or items and so on from people who have gone into the other world. 
And the question is, what effect does this have on them as personalities? I'll explain. If you already have items, but people have long gone, use and enjoy them, my friend. You're already screwed. Wow. This is the truth of life. Let's recall the past. A person died in his most valuable possessions, to which he can be attached. Yes. His things are put in his grave. Yes. And the more ancient times we consider, the more often that happened. And there was also such a thing. When a person died, his house was burned. Let's take the pre-Sumer times, Trapillion culture. Yes. What was going on? People burned houses, they even burned entire cities. Entire cities. Every 50 years. Why? Nowadays, science tries to explain the fact that people lived for 50 years, they cut down trees, they sort of spoiled nature, the environment was disturbed as well as the soil, soil. and they moved to other lands. But let's take a close look at what was going on in the Trapillion culture. They improved everything. They used fertilizers. After all, they used environmentally friendly fertilizers. They came to unfruitful soils and made them fertile. They couldn't destroy that in any way. They didn't cut down trees around the settlement. If they did take wood, they usually brought it from far away. And, on the contrary, they were engaged in planting trees around their, so to say, settlements. Then the conclusion is, why? Because in this way, when a whole generation was gone, they changed the city completely. In other words, people previously knew that, let's say, it is better to get rid of those who haven't gone to God, then it is easier for oneself to come to God. The dead do not stand in your way, and they don't hold you. That's the point. So, they got rid of the inheritance of the dead in that way. That's why it was easier for them to build a new city every 50 years and move with the living people there. But the point is that, before they burned the city, they left the old people to live out their lives and cared for them. And when the last old man passed away, that's when they burned everything and didn't take anything. What is happening nowadays? Nowadays, pardon me, a person hasn't died yet, he hasn't been buried yet, while his relatives are already fighting over the property. Yes. What will belong to whom? Isn't that so? And what is life like? What is the world like? What is the destiny of our people? A simple question. Do they have inner joy? Do they have an aspiration for God? They don't. They have the same domination as among demons. How are the living different from the dead these days? A simple question. Except for the fact that they are still capable of making the right choice, while the dead are incapable of that anymore. Isn't it so? So, through this property and through those items, the dead, the subpersonalities, take a person's life? A simple question. A human has lived all his life. He wasn't going to God. He wasn't spending his powers on what these powers are given to him for. He spent them not on gaining life, but on gaining material wealth. He built a house, earned money, and saved it for his relatives. It doesn't matter what for. I will answer one question right away. I consider it very important. Why does almost every one of us strive to save as much as possible in order to leave a legacy to our relatives and loved ones? While some of us, despite everything, even resort to murdering people and kill masses of them in order to accumulate more money. 
and leave it to their relatives. What for? A simple question. After all, this is a legacy that no one will refuse. It's that legacy which will feed a person after his death. So, are they doing their best for relatives, for their children and grandchildren, or for themselves? Give an honest answer, friends. After all, when talking about life and death, you should be as honest as possible in that. No matter how much it hurts our psyche, no matter how hard it is for us to perceive this, let's say, nowadays, in this consumerist format, when all spiritual principles are already ruined, but you still want to look humane, right? It seems to me that it is necessary to do this so that people would hear, and maybe some will understand, that the legacy of the dead is dead, and that the dead always come after their legacy. Why? Because that's what it is accumulated for. These possessions, that we so frantically split among ourselves after our relative's death are precisely the equivalent of the deceased person's life. It's all extremely serious. Will he come? Of course he will. It's a straight road. It's his life. It's the power of his attention. That's where he invested it and what he gave his life for in order to secure his post-mortem destiny. And he perceived that on a subconscious level or from his masters, from stronger subpersonalities who were already preparing him for such a fate. While oftentimes, and we see this in our world when, let's say, literally, crazy people, there's no other way to explain it. It is either schizophrenia or a subpersonality. And in order to accumulate something, people do things that no normal person would ever do. And they leave a huge legacy. Will it bring happiness to anyone? Let's trace. Simply, let's take anyone. Some people will say, let's take the royal families. After all, everything is fine with them, right? Actually, they passed down… There is also such an interesting slogan yes. that the king never dies. Yes. Right. So here is the answer for you, the king never dies. They feed, and they themselves already become. You know, no one from their families has entered heaven. Is it worth it? A simple question. Transience of life for the sake of inheriting a crown, inheriting countless riches, and so on. Family, jewels, property, I mean, practically everything hinges on that in their circles, huge, enormous amounts. There's a bunch of those subpersonalities there, which go from generation to generation, and from generation to generation, so to say. People become subpersonalities. So what's the point? To lose life, to trade it for momentary pleasures? After all, no matter how long our lives are here, even if it's 100 years, even if it's 1,000 years, it flies by like an instant. If young people have doubts, Talk to the elderly, to those who have already, you know, one foot in that world. And if you bring them to a frank conversation, they remember themselves and feel like a little kid playing with dolls in a sandbox. That's the truth of life, because life flies by in the blink of an eye. And when we waste it on dead things, this is scary. And it's even scarier when we make problems for ourselves. Do you understand? Again, this very property issue. Yes. Yes, I understand, it's important. Yes, this is greed, in the literal sense of the word. Why? When you receive an inheritance, you already think about how you'll live better, right? Well, thank God, you got an inheritance. Now you can afford more than you could before. What can you afford? Feeding a dead person, 
no matter how good a person was when he was alive, he was already preparing to become a subpersonality. You see, the legacy of saints, that's another thing. Therefore, if you prepare a legacy, something as inheritance, then first of all, strive to become a saint. I'll give you a simple, real-life example. There are two brothers. Their mother dies, and they are left with a two-room apartment on the outskirts. So, one of them is wealthy. He has a very serious job in regulatory authorities. And he has already accumulated wealth, enough for three generations to come. The other one is in business, also very wealthy. And they bump their heads because they cannot divide the apartment. Both of them have spent ten times more on lawyers than this apartment costs. Excuse me, carousing at a restaurant, celebrating a birthday. They spend much more than this apartment costs. Do you know what they answered to the question, are you guys crazy? Why are you doing this? They said, out of principle. It's our mom's apartment. Do you understand? I mean, what's actually behind this? Behind that is a tyrant mother who was a tyrant during her lifetime, and she continues to dominate them. They are fighting over who will take over the right to feed her. Wow. Because they are already her slaves. Do you understand? There's no other way to explain it. These are the laws of another physics and another life, the one we don't know, the one that was hidden from us and erased over centuries when they tried to fool us. But, excuse me, the truth comes out as soon as a person leaves the body. And what's even scarier is that each of us feels that this is the truth, feels and understands this, but cannot step over it. That very legacy of the dead, right? A person understands that it's better to burn it all or renounce it. But banal greed, you know, this low greed, this is what they get caught on, on those low feelings of theirs. Again, there are, so to say, options when there is the tithe, double tithe, and so on. Yes, it works. But there is also a nuance here. For example, a person gets an inheritance, no matter whether it is huge or it is Oh, a pot of flowers, right. A pot of flowers, it doesn't matter. But those flowers were grown by the one who passed away. Let's say, it is his trace in this world and the result of his entire life. So, a person gets this legacy. He doesn't want to throw it away. So, what should be done about it, right? Or he doesn't want to burn that flower. Yes. Well, he likes it. You and I already talked in one of the videos about the Alatiara when a long time ago the tithe and the double tithe were introduced, right? If a person who left an inheritance was normal, well, an ordinary person who neither served God nor paid attention to the devil, just a person, let's say, of the consumerist format, then it's better to give the tithe before the ninth day, before the tenth, let's say, the ninth day inclusive, so that this subpersonality gains peace, then a person can safely use this flower. Well, there is again a nuance here. You and I already discussed that, but I'll repeat it. If a person used to cheat, 
he was deceitful. You know? He gave short weight. Right. right. He cheated in measuring, which is forbidden in Islam. He used to give short measure at the market. I'll put it this way. He profiteered dishonestly. Then it's already a double tithe. This is even reflected in the Torah. And this tithe has been known about since the pre-Sumerian times. Meaning, this is something that was introduced by the Alatiara when the creative world began to collapse and to turn already into a consumerist format in order to help people. We explained that. We won't repeat ourselves. People will watch. This right was given to the Alatiara. But excuse me, who were the Alatiara? They were truly saints. Why? Because they lived by God, by the spiritual world, by serving Him. And that's all. They spent 95% of their attention on generating love, on its development. Those were truly holy people. The last tithe, I'll put it this way, which really worked, was in the first circles. Let's call them so of the Knights Templar, or they can even be called those very Alatiara at that time. Yes, this really worked. What about afterwards? Yes, the tithe and the double tithe remained. After all, there is a tradition to donate property of the deceased to temples. But this tradition is actually, of course, even property was donated. Right, so that it would be cleansed somehow. But why did they donate property? Friends, excuse me. Now I will continue this topic a little bit, and then I'll come back to the previous one. For understanding, Tatiana has just mentioned that all the property of a deceased person was donated to temples. Why did this take place? Because if a person had the blood of other people on his hands, if he was in some position, gave orders, and by his orders other people's lives were taken, then a person who profiteered, I emphasize, from other people's lives, he cannot be ransomed in any way or by anyone. It's a sentence. So, to avoid taking this sin on oneself, whatever property he had, it was all actually passed to the Alatiara, but in this case, to the Alatiara who were with the Knights Templar. Whereas, in the days of, let's say, the ancient Alatiara, this property was given to them, and they simply distributed it among the community. That is, when the Alatiara get it, they break the chain. Why? Because they really serve God. And neither any curse nor any subpersonality or any dead person can reach them. As for what they do with it, this is their right. In other words, they could grant it, give it away, and do whatever they wanted with it. But in the time of the ancient Alatiara, people who profited from other people's lives only began to appear. It was an extremely rare phenomenon. While in the time of the Templars, there were already many of them. This precisely led to the point that after them, there were also attempts before them, but mostly after them, property of the deceased was already transferred to temples, churches, and the like. But honestly, well, if it is actually a property of a person, let's say, who took other people's lives and was so sinful, it is better to abandon that property and give it to someone else but then problems arose in those temples that took it. Why? He came after them. A lot of temples burned, and a lot of priests who received it 
ended up badly. And often, back in those days, so to say, local princes introduced themselves as leaders of churches and took this property. And, as a rule, they ended up very badly. Why? Because it is really a curse. It is that sin which cannot be forgiven. It's when a person profits by taking other people's lives. It's a terrible sin. No one who uses this will ever be forgiven. That one certainly becomes a sub-personality. Well, that's scary. While nowadays, I'll put it simply, either a tithe or a double tithe, or property or something else to whom? A simple question. To priests, let's be honest, my friends. How is it possible? For example, monks, okay, they are actually supposed to serve God. How much does it cost nowadays? Honestly, friends, to become a monk and get a cell in a monastery. Well, does it cost money? Sometimes it costs an enormous amount of money to become a monk, to buy a cell, especially in holy places, and so on. That's why we have such monkhood. What do our priests do, regardless of religion? They are so preoccupied with mundane life that, God forbid, do they actually live in such a way that, excuse me, at least 90% of their attention is given solely to God? No, of course not. Well, that's the main principle and meaning. Can he really break that chain? No. You give a tithe to a human. But first of all, it doesn't work if there is just one person. I'm saying it straight away. There should be a group of people. The Alatiarda are a group of people. And when this is passed on to them, yes, in this case, the chain is broken. Why? In our language, they are saints. And naturally, this doesn't apply to them. By giving them that part, by that very right of the Alatiara, a person who has died, up to the ninth day, inclusive, let's say, he gains peace, he falls asleep, that's it. And then a person uses, let's say, 90% of the property of that deceased as he wishes. It's already clean. It is kind of cleansed. If a person dirtied his hands, as we said, then the double tithe was introduced. Not clean. Yes. Whereas, if a person was, let's say, sinful in such a way that it couldn't be forgiven, then all the property was transferred. And that's where greed activates, you see? How a modern person will refuse after receiving an inheritance, moreover, a rich one. Well, if a person killed other people or gave orders to take something away from someone and kill them, they were rich, as a rule, right? So how will you give a rich legacy to someone? It's a jackpot for them, right. Or burn it down. Simply take and destroy it so that no one else gets it. After all, it's a jackpot of a lifetime, as you say, right? But this jackpot turns into such an afterlife fate that when a person becomes a sub-personality, he begins to realize that he should have turned around back then, walked away and just said, I don't know this dead man. I don't have an inheritance. What if a person sold the inheritance? What difference does it make? For example, he sold a house or… Tatiana, mm -hmm. I understand that people will have many questions. Very many. Let's discuss it, okay? Let's take a look. A person received an inheritance. 
and didn't make use of it. He didn't use it, but sold it. Okay. He simply sold the apartment to someone. Okay. He entered into the inheritance. That's firstly. He disposes of it. He sells it. That's secondly. After all, he didn't renounce it and didn't leave or burn it. He took it. He took on the fate of the dead man. He already became his slave. He is already obliged to feed him. You see? He opened the gate. Next, he sold it. What difference does it make whether he exchanged it or sold it? It's in our world that we have money. I'll give you an example. Let's say, I received $10. I exchanged them for 10 euros. For example, friends, let's disregard the exchange rates. 10 euros for 10 pounds, okay? Then what other currency is there? Well, something. Yen. Right. I exchanged it for 10 yen, okay? It doesn't matter how many times or what I exchanged it for, it is the same trace. You see? Meaning, you have already used it. Whether you used it for a week or a day or resold it, it doesn't make any difference. Even a minute. Even if you put a signature for a minute, you accepted it, because you didn't walk away from this wealth or this legacy, and so on. Do you know what is great? If there are debts left, in this case, I will say, this is great. Debts can be paid off. That's material. But on the other hand, you received nothing, and you are not bound. And then you certainly don't owe anything to the dead man. That's the point, you see? Meaning, he can no longer eat you. Is the person who received money the only one who bears responsibility? Or the people who live in, let's say, this apartment afterwards, the buyers bear it too? No. Only the one who… Buyers do not bear any responsibility. The heir does. The heir himself. That one. And it doesn't matter. Exactly him. In what equivalent he transferred it. You see, let it be the most luxurious apartment. I don't know where the most expensive ones are. I don't know. Well, it doesn't matter, friends. Think for yourselves of a place. There's the most expensive apartment in the world, and a person exchanges it for a chocolate bar, you see? He took that chocolate bar, went out, and gave it to a little girl. This way, he decided to show that he was cool. The question is, will those who bought it suffer? And will the girl who took the chocolate bar suffer? No, absolutely not. As for that person, it doesn't matter that he didn't have anything left. He took it, and that says it all, you see? And there is the following question. Let's suppose that a person was so generous that he took this apartment and decided to give it to homeless people, kind of poor people. Who bears responsibility for the use? The one who received it. So he did a disservice to those who now live there. Surely he did. Yes. So they were poor. They also became dead. And now they also became unfortunate. Yes. If he just handed it over without touching it, simply like that, I don't need it, take it away. That's the position. But if he took something, even a penny, then those poor people became richer, their life improved, while his life came to naught. Because it's much harder to plead for forgiveness afterwards. You see? Why? Because you are bound. You also carry a dead person on you. And if that dead person also has a master, which is usually the case, then it is several times harder. 
You know, Igor Mikhailovich, many people subconsciously feel that when they receive such gifts, they don't want to be indebted, they want to give something in return, even if you're a modest person, not a rich one, but you want to show your gratitude somehow. I mean, when you do not accept a gift, but you express your gratitude in some equivalent, be it an item or money. And that is scary, because it's an exchange. But why, when you have such a gift, do you want to be grateful in some way? In return… That's the answer for you. You don't want to accept someone else's legacy. Yes, you feel something. You want to give at least a chocolate bar… To pay off, yes. To pay off, right? Yes. People say, you received this legacy, so use it. And it doesn't matter when a person enters into this inheritance, you see? That is, a person inherited property. He may not use it for 50 years, but then he started using it. Or several generations later. He did not renounce. And someone who will use it in a few generations will be the one who will bear that, both the one who accepted it without renouncing and the one who will use it. That's the paradox. It is energy, it is power. What is a few generations or a few centuries or millennia for a subpersonality? An instant. Well, no, it's a lot for a subpersonality. An instant for it is like eternity. For us, it passes quickly. Igor Mikhailovich, we discussed that basically it's impossible to grant peace to someone who has taken another person's life. But what if it happened as a result of a car accident, for example? I was talking about cases of enriching oneself by taking other people's lives. While you are now talking about taking someone else's life unintentionally, of course, this is not a mortal sin. I mean, a person got into a car accident. It could have been anything, slippery road, even if he failed to control the vehicle, or something else happened. Even if he caused the deaths of several people, he was only a tool in someone's hands, nothing more. He is as much a victim as those who died. Likewise, if a person was defending himself, in other words, a situation is created where he has no choice and he takes someone else's life, but he doesn't receive any profit from that, there is no sin on him. But if he gets material profit from killing people, that's a sin. It's an indelible sin. So, there is a big difference here. Igor Mikhailovich, what about the following situations? A person receives a gift from a person who dies after a while, let's say a month or six months later. Does this gift affect the person to whom the gift was given? In this case, it depends on the gift. If this gift is not a guidebook on black magic, then it doesn't affect him. And not family jewels. And not family jewels, right. Of course not. When you receive something from a living person, whatever you receive, you receive it from a living person. There can be no transfer here. But again, if it is from a living person, if it is not a dying sorcerer who is a relative of yours and wants to give you something while being still alive, well, there are such subtleties. What about the following moment? We were saying that if some family jewelry, crystals or stones affect basically everyone who subsequently obtains them, then in the case of real estate, the responsibility actually falls on the one who sells it. But it so happens that when people move into a house, they just feel that this is 
The energy is bad. Yes, that this affects them. It happens. It does happen when attachment takes place. With apartments, it happens less often, although it does happen in apartments too. While in houses, it's more frequent, especially old houses, passed from generation to generation, and when people were not really good. You go in and the energy is, excuse me, like in a cemetery, moreover, an abandoned one. Although from the outside, it might be all in marbles and shine. That's true. So it's simply energy, but it's not an attachment of subpersonality to new users. It's the energy, the remains of it. You know, it's like, I'll put it this way, torn fragments. It's like fragments of different works that sound at the same time. I mean, you go in and there's some kind of cacophony. And until you put things in order and build up your melody, it's going to be like that for a while. But there's also another side. If you come in and the cacophony is so strong, that you won't be able to set your melody there. Then consider that bad energy has beaten yours. But again, it all depends on the person, right? And on the family that comes in. Who will adjust to whom? Either you and your family will accept those destructive vibes, or you, with your noble, high vibrations, will destroy this nastiness. It all depends on the person. Igor Mikhailovich, what if people give up their property for public use without using it themselves? Well, that's fine. For example, a person receives an inheritance. He gives it up without touching it and hands over all the rights to a museum. Of course, if that inheritance is worthy of a museum, then naturally this won't have any impact on the person. Why? Because a museum is a public domain. Subpersonality has lost in this case. It's dangerous only if this is a memorial museum named after that relative. Named after the deceased relative, then it's… Where you can deeply feel the atmosphere, look at all this… But unfortunately, that's often the case. Look, indeed, there are famous people, their things remain or something else. And then their relatives don't just inherit all this, but arrange, as you say, a memorial for their relative, arrange their… A museum estate, a museum apartment… Of course. Where you can come. Lots of people come there, touch those things, recall him, and so on. Yes, the relatives earn a penny as a bonus there. But the most important thing is that their dead relative, the one who left this legacy, he as a subpersonality is being nourished at this time. And this is important to them, to relatives, because he doesn't eat them in this case. He eats the ones they brought to him. This is the truth of life. Igor Mikhailovich, but what if a property is jointly acquired by a couple? Well, that's often the case. And one of them unfortunately dies. Does the other one bear his sin? Surely. Why do they pass away so quickly? Why is it that one half, as they say, passes away, and the other half that is financially attached to the property also passes away quickly after him? Why? Here's the answer. And then it all falls on the heirs. After all, it's much easier to give a tithe and use the legacy, a tithe from his part, not from yours, right? People would say, well, it's ours, how come I? We built it together, it's mine. What did he do anyway? It's me who did, right? His contribution was minuscule. People receive according to their choice, yes. of course. 
you realize what a huge responsibility actually huge. falls on those people who trust cameras who seize real estate from dying people or conquerors who during military campaigns or wars loot property whatever possible of course what happened in the past okay looters grave robbers let's look at history trivial history which is precisely talking about those who took other people's property dishonestly. Right. For example, by killing the owners and so forth. Did it bring any good to any of them? At least to one of them. Yes. In history, it is written. He became someone or some other things. But let's trace his lineage, and we will see how it affects even his descendants. Him, it's obvious. But even his descendants. So, by conquering or doing something for those very descendants, in order to secure himself, first and foremost, as a sub-personality, he binds them to that state as well. That's the issue. So it turns out that the whole clan feeds the dead, you know, as they say in magic, ancestral curse. After all, we are doing it ourselves. Isn't that true? Afterwards, there is the curse, and then there is everything else. What's left to do is to go to mages, to have the curse removed, and then you can put on your best shoes and get ready to be buried. To cement the bonds. 100%. Tatiana touched upon the subject of grave robbers, and I recall the story that indeed, in the previous century, there was a very popular topic for quite a long time. The curse of the pharaohs, which began precisely with the opening of the Tutankhamun's tomb. No. Moreover, it started after they had robbed this tomb. And if we look at who died back then, and let's look honestly, it is those who had kept a little bit for themselves as a souvenir of what Pharaoh's legacy. Who did God knows what? They, of course. It's a very strong subpersonality. Exactly. While they kept his favorite items for themselves. After all, everything that was dear to him, everything that he used and touched, was brought there. And they secretly pocketed it for themselves. Let's look at how those people died. Okay, there were theories that they had picked up some kind of a fungus, some kind of infection. Yes, yes. that it was some kind of an ancient fungus or bacteria or some action by a secret Egyptian cult that avenged the looting in this way. Well, they began to treat it as a cult already later, let's say, when people began to die, all those who were involved in that. But again, in a selective way. Why? There were those who didn't take anything. Yes, the chief. And nothing happened to them. Really, everything was fine with the chief archaeologist who actually conducted the excavations. Who was the first one to come in there? Yes. And touched everything with his hands, but didn't allow himself to take anything. Yes, because he's a scientist. While those who literally stole little things from there were punished in a short period of time, they died completely different deaths. Excuse me. It's not that they all got some kind of infection yes. and died. No. Right. There were some mysterious stories there. I mean, they couldn't even understand what it was and what provoked such manifestations in a person. For example, a sharp rise in temperature, and a person said, I'm burning like in hell. These stories were recorded. Because he felt what this subpersonality feels. He was telling the truth because he actually established contact with the subpersonality. If those doctors understood and knew at least what we are talking about now, they would have realized very well that at that moment that person was possessed by the subpersonality. In other words, the Pharaoh came for him, and the person felt what he will feel now throughout ages. He will be burning. They clearly described this heat, this state of fear and panic, compression from all sides, 
And while they were still alive, they described this to doctors. But the doctors interpreted it as some kind of infection and so on. They tried to treat it or block it out, but the person died anyway, right? Yes. And what about the others who died completely different deaths? Not from some kind of infection. There was another interesting point there. It turns out that 22 people died within a short period of time. 13 of them were those who were directly involved in the excavations, while the rest were, for example, the wife of the Lord who patronized the excavations or his secretary, meaning the closest immediate circle. Because they received gifts they took for themselves, for their own use, items of the Pharaoh, the strongest subpersonality. You know, it's like signing your own death sentence and then trying to survive. This precisely shows how this curse is passed on. There's no other way to call it. Yes, and it looks like those who arranged the tomb during the time of this pharaoh, they understood that there was such a thing, because archaeologists found a plaque at the entrance on which it was written, Death shall come on swift wings to him that touches the tomb of a pharaoh. Because they knew it very well, and they knew who the pharaoh was. This knowledge was still in the world in the time of ancient Egypt. It was still in the world in a fairly pure form, as well as an understanding of what the dead are. How, let's say, to protect oneself and how not to take someone else's possessions for which you'll pay with your life. Whereas nowadays, all this is lost, you see? It's a pity, of course, that we, as humans, have lost what's the most important and the most valuable, which people preserve for millennia. This is the most important knowledge. Everything else is nonsense. Nothing compares to it. It's the knowledge of how to gain life and the knowledge of how not to become a slave to the dead. Those are scary things. Igor Mikhailovich, what should people do? Because nowadays, in our modern world, the legislation is such that people often enter into an inheritance already after the ninth day, meaning after this interval when they could donate something from this property of the dead. Well, you've just brought up the question which I actually promised people to go back to. We have slightly digressed, but I remember it. It's a serious question too. Why? Because a person enters into an inheritance right away. Yes. Thus, in any case, we use those items. We have accepted the inheritance, that's it. But according to the law, it will become ours. In six months. In six months, right. So what should we do? Meanwhile, let's say the tithe may be given only… Within nine days. Until the ninth day, so to say. Nine days. You might not make it. Let's look, here's also an issue of physics, isn't it? I mean, in order for you to give 10% of that property to someone who really possesses holiness, who would break this chain, which binds you to a dead person, and someone who can give peace to the deceased, meaning peace to subpersonality. This takes physical time anyway. And it's not just a transfer, people should see. Well, as in the past. While in the past, it went to a point that people brought a deceased person to the Alatiara. Let's say, to those very Knights Templar, people brought a painting drawn from a deceased person or made a mask of him. By the way, where did a mask made of the dead, meaning of the deceased, come from? When they painted a dead person's face, applied a material, right, and then took it along with 10% of his property to the Alatiara, who were already with the Knights Templar. An image and a name are important. Also, the Alatiara were supposed 
to perform sort of, let's call it a ritual, prayer and the like regarding the deceased, which is where it all came from. By the way, in fact, priests copied it all exactly from the real Alatiara. So it's a kind of petition to God by the right of the Alatiara. God endowed them with this right, but He didn't endow priests with that right. That's the point, you see? Well, since religions are supposed to be in the service of God, as it is written and as they say, hence they supposedly have this right too. And it is funny, when a priest prays for a dead person, or people give to priests, regardless of religion, those very 10 or 20 percent, or even the entire property, doesn't matter. It turns out that all this is pointless. Why? Because the Alatiara were given the right for their group. They never worked individually. In other words, this is sort of a security measure. They were one in many and many in unity. It's like representatives of the spiritual world, you see? So, in their circle, it worked. But when there is one person who comprises a multitude in himself, that's ridiculous, of course. It didn't work. By the way, this point also had a very strong effect, and all this was noted. But that's already a different subject. We will talk about that. Why? Because these things are also very interesting. But now, We've been talking. I'm going back because, excuse me, friends, the topic is interesting. One thing builds upon another, and it turns out that this tangle should be untangled, while the tangle is rather big, for you to have at least some understanding. So, let's go back to the legacy you received, okay? Let's say you want to help your relative. At the same time, protect yourself and help him. Hence, if he was a good man, you should give a tithe to the Alatiara. But what should you do if you enter the inheritance in six months? Well, if you take it and use it, it's yours. The equivalent may be any pay from your own funds or don't use the property if you don't want to. If you want to burn the property, burn it. Or you can borrow funds and transfer them if you like. It makes no difference. Those are funds. You already calculate and make a decision. There's a certain value of inheritance. It doesn't matter. You received a pot of flowers. It costs 10 cents. You should give away one cent. But the flower pot remains yours and you can safely use it. Plus, you've done a great favor for the deceased. You've given him peace and rid him of suffering. You've shown an example to your children and grandchildren, just in case, so that they do the same for you. Isn't that blissful, to get away from suffering and torments? Yes, a person hasn't come to God. It's impossible to buy a pass to heaven, so to say. But it is possible to help attain peace. And again, God gave this right, not for trading legacy, and even not for saving the deceased. They made their choice. They already died and didn't gain life, but for saving the living who can still gain life, and so that the dead do not hang on the living like anchors. For this very purpose, the Alatiara were given this right to save the living, to cut those anchors off. This is true.
You know, Ingrid Mikhailovich, very many people will find themselves at a point where they have taken advantage of property and, in principle, they haven't managed to, let's say, give peace to their near and dear people who died. This is a fact. But they follow the spiritual path. Does this very fact that people are going along the spiritual path cancel out those impacts or not? The fact that we are going somewhere doesn't mean anything yet. But when we come there, that's what erases everything. If a person really embarks on the spiritual path and gains life, he gains eternity. This is right. And that's what you should do. This is important. As for the notion like, I have embarked on the spiritual path, and now that's it, I'm independent. Well, tell subpersonality about that. Friends, let's be honest. Many of those who, let's say, signed a contract with the dead, which is nothing other than a deal when you took advantage of the dead person's property. When you, let's say, there are many ways and methods to get some bonuses from the dead, but to pay for that with one's life. And so, when this process has passed and you embark on the spiritual path and want to throw these shackles off to break away from Satan's clutches and the literal sense of the word, in fact, a lot of guys feel that, They feel what their great-grandfather did, and it hinders them now. Why is it easier for another person to advance? He doesn't face the resistance which Satan, as the rightful owner, exerts on your life, you see? After all, many people face that. But I'll put it as follows, friends. If your real goal is life, you will gain it. However, you'll have to go through a lot. But it doesn't matter what you've gone through when you reach the goal. It's the highest reward, and it is worth fighting for. As for everything else, all our material things, all those legacies, you know, the entire world, all the gold of this world, it's not worth the life of one angel. This is true. Even the whole globe is not worth it. Together with all subpersonalities, it is nothing compared to the life of one angel, because he will live eternally. While all of this, everything material, is inevitably dead and definitely temporary, you shouldn't forget that. Isn't that true? Well, you know, we again go back to our world, We go back to what we were taught, to what is more interesting to the dead than to the living. After all, how much of the dead has penetrated our lives? And by becoming traditions and imposing that on the living, the dead forced the living to share life with the dead. Is this really normal? Well, Our today's conversation is a tremendous help on the spiritual path because people understand who in them urges them to this endless material accumulation. Pushes. I mean, also for people, of course. You know, again, 
material accumulations. Everything should be available. We live in the material world in such conditions, but when it becomes insanity, this is… A prevailing goal of life, yes. Of course, this shouldn't be a goal. I said a hundred times, if a person can afford living in a luxury house, driving a Rolls-Royce, flying his own helicopter or airplane, God grant him. Do not raise it to a cult, right? The main thing is that it shouldn't hinder his spiritual growth. Whereas wealth is neither good nor bad. You see, it's a fact. It's the result of a person's work, the result of his business. And what is business? It's his life. If that business life doesn't hinder the spiritual life, then it makes no difference. Yet, excuse me, it is much more pleasant to drive, let's say, a Rolls-Royce, although frankly speaking, I've never driven one, than some Lanos, let's say, right? Well, I've driven a Lannis. I haven't driven a Rolls-Royce, but I think there is a difference, right? The main thing is for money not to become God for a person, right? Absolutely right. And you shouldn't spend this equivalent of life on madness and turn your near and dear people into your slaves. If you accumulate wealth, if you succeed, have a good business and everything else, if you want to leave a legacy, for God's sake, my friend, that's wonderful. But remember one thing, when leaving a material inheritance, leave them a spiritual inheritance too, not as a dead man, but as a saint, so that your wealth would be blissful and so that they follow your example. That's what is important, my friend. So, as not just to leave something that will, let's say, lead them to sorrow instead of joy, what the dead give is dead, but what the alive leave after themselves is alive. This is also important. But as for this very inheritance of saints, it turns out that, yes, even if few items remain, saints had a rather ascetic way of life and sometimes used things that didn't even belong to them. They belonged to the community, monasteries, and so on. But if, let's say, some items remain after them, can those items have a beneficial influence on those people who use them afterwards? Here, I have to disagree with you. Again, if a person is like a saint, this means he's an ascetic and had no belongings. But what about my good friend, Sai Baba? And there were other friends, let's say, who had a bunch of Rolls Royces. And they were saints, you see? They simply played with all those surpluses. This has nothing to do with their spirituality. Some people will say, how come? They are actually spiritual. They should have given it away. To whom? To the dead? A simple question. After all, it's not about wealth. It's about the system. Those saints understood perfectly well that if the majority of people had chosen to serve Satan rather than God, if they had betrayed their prophets and did not live according to the behest of their prophets who wanted creative society to be here, while the majority of people wanted to live in a consumerist format, then no matter how much you give them, it's all pointless. Yet, frankly speaking, none of the saints were attached to matter. Although, I'm just saying, they lived quite luxuriously if we measure it by the consumerist format, some of them even to the point of insanity. So what? Did they cease being saints because of that? While you say, modestly and ascetically, it makes no difference how a person lived. What matters is what he lived by. And anticipating your question, I'm answering it. Even that very toilet 
of Sai Baba, if a person who follows the spiritual way uses it, will it help him or not? It will. Why? It is made of ceramic, it is dense and has a memory. Just like everything in this world, it exchanges energy. You see? Whereas, if a bad person uses even that diamond which Sai Baba himself gave him, would it help him or not? Of course not. Why? Because what is embedded in a stone is revealed only when there are similar vibrations. When the notes match, that's when it unfolds. Do you understand? Therefore, the legacy of saints helps only those who aspire to become saints. If this legacy, let's suppose, that very stone, when a person embarked on the spiritual path and began to develop, and he has developed to sainthood, gained life, and left a legacy to someone, then at every step of the next person who follows his path, this stone will be like a clue. It's like a flash drive with instructions for life, and it will really help. But if it gets into the hands of a greedy person who serves Satan or is controlled by a dead man, what help will he get? None. Just a material value. You see? It's like in a joke, I'll tell you. Vasily Ivanovich meets Peter. Peter says, Vasily Ivanovich, we found a cistern of alcohol. Vasily Ivanovich says, let's go have a look. When they arrive, there is indeed a cistern of alcohol. And Peter says, Vasily Ivanovich, what shall we do? That one says, what do you mean, what we shall do? Let's sell it, Peter says. Wow, what do we need so much money for? Vasily Ivanovich says, Peter, come on, we will surely drink it away. Where to direct it? No matter how much you give to the dead, it will all go in the same direction. That's the point. Yet, some people believe that if someone in the family was a saint, the family must necessarily become successful or rich. Rich and so on, because a saint has blessed. Yes. Those are the tricks of priests. They have imposed this nonsense. It doesn't matter who was in your family. I'm sorry, even if there were prophets in your family, it's not a fact and not a guarantee that you will embark on the spiritual path at all, let alone gaining life. Why? Your life is the life of an individual. Yes, we live in society. Yes, near and dear people influence us. But I'll put it as follows. In the consumerist format, if your father was a general, you have a chance to become a general. But if your great-grandfather was a saint, your chances to become a saint are the same as those of your great-grandfather, right? You have to go through a lot, through everything he went through, then you'll become a saint. And it has nothing to do with wealth. Although it may, if there is an example of a holy person, Satan may seduce his family because they are proud and want to be like that person. They want to be holy. Well, it is easier for Satan to give them wealth so that they would give up their holiness and become his slaves for centuries. This is possible as an option. Igor Mikhailovich, we have discussed material inheritance, but what if an inheritance is immaterial, a dead legacy, for example, if it's a magic power or knowledge? There are such opinions. Well, it is generally believed that when a sorcerer dies, he is obliged to transfer his power directly to one of his relatives, or sorcerers usually call someone up and ask him very persistently to come to them. How does this actually happen? How is it transferred? Many do that through an item. Him, either an icon or a piece of paper or at least something. It doesn't matter. You would bring him a glass of water. Or, 
it may be any action of yours. Give your hand or take something, whether it's a piece of paper, a note, or a ring, as a gift. And that's all. The main point is contact. The main point is interaction. Is some power being transferred? The main point is for you to be cooperative. It doesn't matter whether you offer your hand or a glass of water. Yes, the power is transferred. It is that power of Vril, which you and I were talking about. Indeed, when a true mage, but there are very few of them, friends, I'll put it this way, in the modern world, there are more talks than real mages like that. They accumulate this power. But by transferring it, they release themselves so that they can die. Otherwise, a person is already nearly dead, but the power doesn't let him go. But they pass away to become subpersonalities. And at this point, they are no longer alive, but they are already, let's say, not quite dead either. Yet, the excess of power just tears them apart. It's extremely hard for them, so naturally they want to get rid of it. They can only get rid of it either by performing a series of rituals, but when they have no strength and no ability, they cannot do that, or by transferring it to their relatives. That's why they transfer it. The deceased do not pity anyone, neither their relatives nor their friends. And here, as I understand, there is a question. Can relatives not use this power or use it? Or is it already a doom? Well, yes. What should people who happen to be around do? They just happen to be around. I'll explain. Imagine that your relative who, let's say, killed people with a hammer, dies and gives you that hammer, and you take it, without knowing and without understanding. You take it. We don't take it as a legacy. We take it as a tool that has the power to kill. What can you do? At this point, you as a human being, my friend, can use the right given to you from God, the freedom of choice. You can take that hammer from the maniac and continue his business, or you can go and build a temple, a real temple for God. And that's where your choice is. The same is in this case. If you get a power, while it's just a power, it's important where you will direct it. If you direct it to love for God, you will gain life. If you direct it to serving Satan, you will gain death. That's the whole answer. Yes. Now the stories of mages who tell how this gift was manifesting in them become clear that at some point they simply began to actually hear incantations which flew in their heads or instructions on what to do and of how course. to perform a certain ritual. Along with the power, a subpersonality comes. After all, a sorcerer doesn't die. Hence, If you took this power and didn't direct it to God, then after nine days, on the tenth day, the owner of this power will come as well. He simply made a nest for himself. That's the point, friends. Igor Mihailovich, there is also another question regarding the transfer of magic power. It is one thing when they just transfer their power, but it's another thing when they transfer demons. People actually tell stories that in their dreams some entities start coming to well, them that's and force them to engage in magic. I understand your question. It is simple. When a real mage dies, he can transfer. Well, he not just can, he is obliged to get rid of the surplus of real if he has it. Otherwise, it's very hard for him. In other words, he can transfer energy, but energy is energy. 
You see, I'm saying once again, it's like money. I mean, you can spend it on what is good or on what is bad. However, a mage can also transfer a so-called demon, a demon executor. But that's already another thing, excuse me. And here, the issue becomes point-blank. I would say, if you have received this demon executor, nothing depends on your choice anymore. Let's say, it's not like you get power. You can redirect it. And you can redirect it, on the contrary, to spiritual service. At this point, it would seem that a person who worked for the devil his entire life gives you an immense advantage and an opportunity to leap to an angelic rank, so to say. This is indeed so. While in this case, it's a very serious issue. Why? Because a demon executor is what that sorcerer has formed. It's a phantom, but a dense energy one, quite perceptible and tangible, and it possesses tremendous skill and tremendous power. However, not everything is that simple. I actually think it's, if our friends are interested, it's like a separate topic. Why? Because this is there are subpersonalities in third forces. While this is exactly a category, one of the forms of third forces which are often used by sorcerers, and they basically also differ by sensations, by subjective perception of what impacts you. People should know and understand this as well. You know, it's like I would compare it to symptoms of various diseases. If, for example, we use some medications for one disease and other medications for another disease. If you switch between medications, it will only get worse. Therefore, you should actually know this point. Here, the recipe is certainly one. Whatever forces come to you, let's say, dark or semi-dark ones, you should go towards the light, then all the darkness will fall off you. But you should understand and know, the temptations are different and the impacts are different. And these entities are really those who spoil the lives of the living. Well, as people will say, if they want to, we can bring up this topic too. Right. And you said that this is a choice. At Shadow Control, we encountered various mages, and there are two stories which actually show that everything is really about a person's choice. One story is when a girl, who also inherited this gift and practiced magic, came across the primordial knowledge at a certain stage. She was presented with the book Alatra. The person who gave her this book said that as soon as this girl took the book in her hands, she said, I feel that this book contains something that will change me very much, but I don't want to change now. And she put the book away. That's example number one. Well, the second example is when a girl also came to us. Hence, she's a knowledgeable mage. Yes, well, the second story is when a girl who is a beginner tarotist came to our studio, she really wanted to be filmed in order to promote herself. But the story is that after some time, she literally started calling us and asking, please do not publish that video, because since I gave you the interview, I have lost peace. Her conscience began to torment her very much. She said, I realized the responsibility I have, that if people start coming to me now, they will think that I'm a mage, so... 
In other words, she realized this point and she said, I began to compare what's going on in the lives of my acquaintances who also engage in such things, and I have understood that they have plenty of trouble, to put it mildly. She said that she doesn't want to get into the same trouble as well, so to say. To follow their path. Yes, to follow their path. Freedom of choice. And she wondered, what should I do? Perhaps I should burn this deck of cards? I don't know what to do. Anyway. It's better to burn it than to give it to someone as a legacy. That's the best way. Those very cards, that very wrong inheritance. Actually, anything that can bring you evil, if you cannot turn it into good, it's better to get rid of it. Igor Mikhailovich, people also ask whether the Alatra sign, which comes into a person's sight, can somehow neutralize the effect of a subpersonality and strengthen personality's position. The question is interesting. Strengthen personality's position. The sign which comes into a person's sight. I mean, it affects. Alatra works, let's say, like a flashlight, right? In other words, when there is light that falls on the Alatra sign, So, this very reflected light is working. And here, it's important not for a person to see the Alatra sign, but for the Alatra sign to see a person. Why does this work? Well, any sign, I mean, a genuine sign, is taken from nature. When, under certain conditions, Let's say, an acoustic wave or an energy wave can transform into a sign. Yet, there are signs which, for example, can convert that very photon into a certain kind of energy or certain frequencies that are very discomforting for those very third forces, subpersonalities, and the like. But there is a simple question. I understand. People will now say, what if I sleep under the Alatra sign? A light bulb is on, there is light, it reaches the sign and everything is fine. Will subpersonalities disturb me? Yes, my friend, they surely will, because they are from inside your structure. As for third forces that work outside of your structure, it will affect them, and very strongly. That's already valuable. But it's a little bit difficult to affect a subpersonality. It is merely a sign. One has to become a strong personality. A person himself should become a strong personality, of course. Then nobody will threaten him, neither third forces nor any other forces, or subpersonality, nothing. If a person develops spiritually, this is true. You know, let's say, even the devil is not a threat for an angel. He cannot do anything to it. This has to be remembered. Right? But nevertheless, the Alatra sign has a very positive effect on, let's say, all sorts of evil entities, driving them away, right? Can it be used? It can be. It won't hurt. Are there any contraindications or not? Well, let's say, the only contraindication to the Alatra sign is if you use it at work while your boss is a sheer demon, the sign may infuriate him. Activate him. Yes. Therefore, you should be careful. Igor Mikhailovich, you once said that building the Creative Society liberates people from this hereditary burden to a certain extent. From greed. Why? That's true, because few people think about this. While in the Creative Society, 
I'm not taking the transition period. There will be money at that time. There will be greed, hoarding, and everything else, but it will quickly end. While in the creative society itself, the concept of inheritance and the concept of greed go away. A person doesn't have to engage in magic in order to cheat somebody for 10 cents or something else. A priest doesn't have to pretend that he loves God walk around in women's clothes and do devil knows what to fill up his belly. You see? Everyone will do what they want and what they have an inclination to. If a person's soul longs for God, he will serve exactly Him. If a person is free in his choice, he is free. And the first thing the Creative Society provides is freedom, as well as material benefits which are abundant. And a person Goods are created without human attention, right? Absolutely. This is very important. And this point is very significant. Those replicators of various products that we use, after all, a human makes it without investing attention. Nowadays, in order for us to earn money, let's say, for that very house or that very car, we have to work long and hard, and it takes many days. It sometimes deprives us of a major part of our lives. And naturally, it's a legacy. Meanwhile, in the creative society, you will have housing anyway. If you want something, you can get it. So what is next? Okay, you get it. Give it away and take something else. In other words, it is not worth anything. It is not worth your attention. In the same way, any item you take is not worth your attention. You press a button, you get it. And what's next? Right? Every time. While this is tremendous freedom, it's a destruction of those laws which nowadays, unfortunately, strongly affect our world, our consumerist format, and our lives. Friends, generally speaking, those laws according to which the invisible world exists are not the laws that people have written. So, my friends, you should know these laws in the first place because those laws which are written by people may change or be altered. There are many interpretations of them, and again, they depend on the opinion or decision of a judge, people or something else. But the laws that are written and created by God are immutable, and you should clearly know them. Then, then the road to God's world is wide and smooth. Everything is very simple. You know, with every conversation, it is revealed more and more even how the Creative Society positively and favorably influences the development of a human as personality. That's exactly the reason why this Creative Society was actually that legacy which the Prophets bequeathed. After all, they described how we are supposed to live, and this is exactly the Creative Society, right? Again. There has been interference of the devil and his servants. The primordial knowledge has been altered and turned into religion. That's okay. Humanity still has a chance to correct everything. Right, friends? Yes, it does. While the main thing, friends, is to start with love for each other. So let's just love each other. Thank you. Thank you so much, Igor Mikhailovich. Thank you very much. Thank you, friends. Thank you for being here.